Thanks for listening. If you'd like to schedule a one-on-one coaching with Dr. Lodi, please visit drsudliff.com. I am an American board certified OBGYN, a mom, a Muslim, and I'm talking about sex. This is the Muslim Sex Podcast. Welcome to the Muslim Sex Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sada Flody, and this episode is everything you need to know about owning your own sexuality. And I'm here with the author Habib Akande to go over ways on how women in Islam and uh, faith-based women can own their own sexuality. So we'll be talking about different ways and methods. Um, But before I get into it, the first thing I want to make very clear is that I am not giving any type of medical advice. (laughs) So if you have any concerns about your health, please speak to your medical provider. And if you have any questions about your religion, please ask your friendly neighborhood religious leader. It's the Muslim Sex Podcast because I just happen to be a Muslim woman who talks about sex. So... Habib, I'm so glad you're on with me again, and uh, we'll be continuing our discussion in the last episode. For those people that had listened to it, we were talking about female sexuality in Islam and the basis for it in the Quran and in the Hadith. And now we'll be talking about ways in which uh, women can own their own sexuality. So I'm going to hand it over to you, Habib. Thank you for having me again, Dr. Sadaf. Yeah. Amazing topic, um, an important one, um, and some people might be thinking, why is it that a man is speaking about how women can... <laughs> I have had that question. I have yeah. that question. So, so, so what I would say in defence of that, or in my defence, is I'm just maybe um, summarising what I've heard, what I've experienced, and what I've researched. So it's not me as a man telling women what they can do. It's just relaying maybe as a vessel of um, information or, or knowledge that some useful tips not what they should do, so to speak. So take what you like um, and then what you dislike, obviously you can just like throw it away. Um, but some, I think what's what would probably be quite important for women who want to own their sexuality or, bring their sens- or embrace their sensuality is education. I think education is definitely important. And what I mean by education is not necessarily um, you need to necessarily go to a school, but to empower yourself with sex positive and pleasure positive individuals, especially women. Um, to surround yourself with them, whether it's digitally, whether it's, um, you know, people that you know personally or in your community. And the reason why I say that is because a lot of the questions I receive or, or other sex educators or therapists hear from women um, in relation to sexual matters comes from a place of where women maybe feel that they're broken or they're not normal or they want to know, are they okay? And this is something that, again, in comparison to men, they're not many of the concerns that I, I have or I hear from men. And with a lot of these concerns that a lot of women have about, you know, feeling unloved or unworthy or broken and abnormal, a lot of it is down to maybe, like I would say, misinformation or miseducation because of what they've heard, that they feel that maybe they're supposed to be this perfect woman or this perfect wife or this um, this this person in the bedroom that's completely sensual and doesn't have any low libido. And, and all of these things are things that once someone educates themselves and understands sensuality and, and normal and healthy sensuality will know that, when it comes to libido, it goes up and it goes down. There's no such thing as like normal libido. Every woman is different. Every woman is unique. And also not to compare themselves to others. Because as much as it's important to gain beneficial knowledge and, and learn from maybe other people's experiences, 
it can also be a hindrance to that person when they start comparing themselves to others because if they're hearing maybe some of their girlfriends are experiencing certain things, they will feel that they might feel that if I'm not experiencing this, then maybe something is wrong with me. And that's not the case. So that's why I think education is of pleasure orientated education is definitely important because you want to know what is pleasurable or what is good for you. Right. And then, like I mentioned about surrounding yourself with um, competent and qualified people as well, whether, again, like I said, digitally or whether it's in person, because then they can help hopefully reassure some of maybe someone's anxieties or fears or misunderstandings that maybe some people may have. If it's some issues that someone might have from a religious perspective where they may feel they're not entitled to pleasure or they it's not becoming for a woman to initiate intimacy with with their spouse because their partner maybe comes from a culture um, that is considered not becoming of, of, of a woman to, to in, initiate desire. If she were to empower herself with education and realize, especially from the Islamic um, tradition, that there are a number of examples of women who initiate desire and it's not considered to be immodest, then hopefully that will alleviate any fears that she does have that it's not acceptable, appropriate for a woman to initiate desire because maybe what her culture teaches. So if she's following her religion, hopefully her religion will empower her in, in that respect. Um, I would also talk about the importance of, obviously for people, people of faith, the importance of God, prayer. I think a lot of people do underestimate the power of prayer um, in, in the sense of asking Allah, asking God Almighty to give them faith and conviction to kind of, whether it's ask questions or to pursue something that they want to pursue, but for whatever reason, like I said, it may be some external factors from their community, from their family, even from their partner that may be preventing them, that maybe God, to ask God to give them the strength that they need to kind of continue whatever they, they want to do. I think that's very important. I think that's very um, empowering. Um, and also in terms of owning their sensuality, how a woman owns her sensuality, again, it depends on the woman, because obviously every woman is different, and understanding that what it means to own your sensuality in one cultural context is very different from another. And I think it's important that people understand that. So when it comes to owning your sensuality or being a sexually empowered individual, understand what that means to you. It doesn't mean that you should, because in, in one culture, on one person's perspective, it may mean having relations with so many different men, Another person, they may be engaging in certain acts that, again, that might not be within your religious values or your or your cultural values or your belief system, and that's fine. But then to align yourself with people who have similar maybe values or belief systems who are also sexually empowered, because sex, what it means to be a sexually empowered woman for one particular individual can be very different to another. But if you're just hearing the narrative from one particular person that doesn't maybe align with your cultural beliefs or your religious beliefs, then you may feel that you're not sexually liberated or sexually empowered because you're not doing what such and such person is doing. So that's why, again, it's about owning your sensuality or owning your sexuality in terms of what feels good for you. And I think whilst um, coaching also is very important and helpful with that, whether it's coaching or therapy, probably, coaching is probably more um and you can educate me on this more more helpful than therapy because coaching is forward thinking and it's looking at how you can go from a to b rather than where therapy is more looking at in, in the past to resolving some 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 issues that someone may have so definitely obviously coaching and counseling is also another avenue but there are many um avenues in many different ways i'm named about maybe like five or six but i think it's important that educate yourself in different and there's different ways you can educate yourself it could be reading we listen to a podcast it could even be surrounding yourself by osmosis by other people that you admire who are sexually empowered and seeing how they kind of operate or just kind of listening to them and that can be also a way of kind of um owning your sensuality and becoming a sexually empowered woman 
Right, right. I agree with you. I think that, you know, definitely the most important thing is education, right? And so, uh, you know, often I will refer to your book, uh, Women of Desire, and I will, um, when I'm giving like lectures or talking to other women about it, I will refer, especially Muslim women, I think that, and we talked a little bit about this in the last podcast, but it's, it's women allowing themselves and giving themselves permission to learn about this topic. And, you know, if they think that it is dirty or shameful or wrong, you know, then going into that belief and, and looking into why they feel that it might be dirty, shameful or wrong, right? And where did those thoughts come from? Where is it that they learn that, you know, and is that really true? And is, it, is that serving them? Because if they have these thoughts that are not serving them, then, you know, how do we move past those thoughts to get to a place where, you know, you think that sex is a positive thing, that it's, you know, something that can be shared between two people that love each other and that something that creates more intimacy within a relationship. So, you know, that's why, that's where we go with, with coaching is that to look at somebody's beliefs, right? And it's not that, you know, one belief is right or one belief is wrong, but it's just to know what our beliefs are and then to examine them and to accept them that, you know, that we have them, but then also how do we move forward with those thoughts? And I think that that's where that comes in. Also, you know, oftentimes I will have women that come in and talk about um, decreased libido, decreased arousal, you know, issues such as vaginismus and things of, um, of what they can do, you know, on their first night or how they can feel more comfortable with all of these things. And what I would recommend is that, patients go and seek out their gynecologist or their provider so that, you know, they can go ahead and get um, knowledge about their own bodies, right, get a full checkup and things of that. But also what I find very helpful um, is to know your own anatomy. And I think that and you also mentioned that in uh, some of your books, you know, you go over the anatomy, but I think it's very, very important to have the proper vocabulary. And so that women, you know, so that we don't refer to the external genitalia of a, of a woman as just her vagina, right? It's not, that's not what it is. It's called the vulva. So it's important to know the, the vocabulary so that we can describe to say like a healthcare provider, what's going on and what, what might be their trouble and where they're having issues. Um, also, it's important to know what you like and what you don't like, right? And to go over that, I think that that's very important. And I think you talk about that in your book as well, about um, pleasure and putting pleasure in perspective and that women in Islam, they have a right to pleasure and they should know that and, and feel empowered by it. Right. And that it's, it's very important that not only that the pleasure of the husband, but also that of the wife and the spouse. And I think that those are very important things. Also, we discussed a little bit about mindfulness and, and being focused and very intentional when you perform such, uh, you know, when you are intimate with your spouse or your partner is that a lot of times women find it difficult to become aroused or find that they're, you know, not lubricated and things like that. And a lot of times the reason why that happens is because they are thinking about so many other things, right? They might be thinking about the laundry, the kids, the, you know, what they're going to make for dinner, this and that. And so many studies have shown that just mindfulness, being being present in what it is that you are doing at that time, increases arousal, increases desire, 
right? And so that is very, very important and something that we can all try to work on and, you know, focus. And I think that that also helps a lot with uh, intimacy and um, being present in the bedroom. And a lot of times what I tell patients is that whatever is going on outside is also happening inside the bedroom, right? So if if the spouses are not talking to each other, if they are stonewalling, if they're more like roommates and not really spouses, right? Then that's going to also translate into the bedroom. So the biggest issue that I find women have is that of communication and not really talking to their spouse. And oftentimes what women see is perhaps what's seen on in the media, right? So, you know, a woman with the perfect body, a woman that is just, you know, uninhibited in the bedroom and things like that. And, and we have to understand that those are all theatrics and that, you know, it doesn't, that doesn't come naturally to most women. And so they have to feel comfortable. And I think you mentioned that in the last podcast, right, is that it's important for the spouse to create the environment so that the woman feels safe and that there's consent and that there's both pleasure in for both spouses. And I think that, you know, creating that environment, that context and that safety is what is what allows women to feel uninhibited in the bedroom. So oftentimes when women ask me what is it that their spouses can do, that's what their spouses can do is make the environment, the context, you know, pleasurable or comfortable for them so that they can feel inhib uninhibited and that they can enjoy that intimate or that, um, you know, the intimacy that comes in a marriage between a husband and a wife. Yeah, that, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And just to butter um, your point about um, the female anatomy, that's just something that came to mind that I'm kind of recently, I was aware of, but now I'm, I'm more conscious of is, um, um, because obviously I do some webinars and some workshops from um, with people, especially from like West Africa and some from East Africa. One thing that someone's a couple of people said, and I didn't realize as much until maybe when the person said it was that um, she found it quite distressing that a number of like the figures that you see or like the of, of the female anatomy is a of a of a form that doesn't look like hers, even because of the, the skin color. Um, and the second is that where for example in in cultures and countries where female genital cutting is quite prevalent to show different types and i'm not an advocate i don't support um female genital mutilation or female genital cutting and that was but just want to make that clear but where a number of women have obviously have, have undergone this for healthcare providers or uh, medical practitioners or sex educators to be not only be aware of it and have a language that doesn't make them feel alienated and also yeah. maybe there's reflection of genitalia that reflects um, the genitalia of a woman whose maybe clitoral hood has been removed or the clitoral glands has been removed or even a woman who's been infibulated because each and every one of these women still can experience sexual pleasure and orgasm. Absolutely. And that was Absolutely. something that, because um, I got a, a, a mold done of, of a vulva, one with an anatomy with, you could say, like the labia lips and, and the clitoral, that one hasn't been genitally cut and another one that has been infibulated just to show, A, when I'm doing my workshops, also to show that in both situations that a woman can still experience sexual pleasure and, and orgasm because th that's also some of the belief systems or the false belief systems that people have heard that women who have been cut cannot orgasm or not can experience pleasure. And one of the things that I found quite interesting is that when I was studying in Egypt, and in Egypt, um, genital cutting or female circumcision is quite prevalent. Mm. Um, so much so that even a number of like this, 
teachers and the scholars, they will speak ill of a woman who is not circumcised. And they will say like the women in like the West will not circumcise, you know, they've got excessive desire, not like our pure women in Egypt or Muslim women who are circumcised. And in the West, you know, like any woman, they would just sleep with anyone because they haven't been circumcised. Wow. And they would use that, that rhetoric in a way to kind of like justify or to kind of make people feel like obviously circumcision or genital cutting is the right way to go about things. And then in the Western world, when I'm hearing obviously a lot of people speaking about um, whether it's you know female genital cutting, whether you want to call it circumcision or FGM, they will say even some mistruths that a woman who's been circumcised cannot experience pleasure or cannot enjoy sex or cannot orgasm. And yes, there is some truth in that, in that there are a number of women who have found it difficulty to experience pleasure or has found the difficulty orgasm. But one of the problems when you continue with that kind of rhetoric is that your some people, women will lose hope because maybe some women who have undergone that procedure and are finding it difficult to climax like many women do, they might feel that they're unable to climax because of what they've heard. So that's something that also I'm very cognizant of that it's important that A, know your audience, but when you're speaking about things, especially, yes, you may be, you don't want to maybe give the impression that you're encouraging like genital cutting or anything like that, but to not speak mistruths or make people feel uncomfortable that they are devoid of pleasure. And that's something that and I'm quite, cognizant of but careful in the sense that especially when I'm speaking or posting things because it's going to people that are in West Africa, East Africa, America, Europe and people have got different ideas especially when it comes to the female anatomy so me always showing um, the typical or the usual anatomy what it looks like and then someone who doesn't have that may feel less than. Yes. So that's also again, but then when I show an anatomy of one that's been circumcised, then people may feel I'm endorsing or encouraging, and that's not what I'm doing. But it's to make people feel that those women who have been genitally cut or infibulated, that there's still a place for them and you can still experience pleasure and still experience orgasm. So that's also something that the kind of I just thought about when you mentioned about owning the, um understanding the anatomy. Right, right. And, and you're so right, because uh, actually, that is a question I was recently speaking on an app, and uh, somebody, a woman had asked that, that she had been circumcised, and, um, you know, whether or not she would, she could experience orgasm. And that's exactly the conversation that I had with her is that absolutely, she could, and that there are different, uh, you know, erogenous zones and areas. And that just because, you know, even if the, the clitoris has been removed, you know, you and I both know that all there's so much of that tissue, right? The, um, the erectile tissue that is underneath that we don't see okay. in that area, right on the anterior surface of the vagina, right? The, which we know, or that they call the G spot. And now they call the er erogenous zone where women can still experience um, climax and still have an orgasm, right? Even mm -hmm. if that clitoris has been removed. So, and there's different types of orgasms, but absolutely those women um, can experience an orgasm. You know, also I wanted to go over um, really quickly also about women and, you know, the first night. I think that a lot of times women think that that first night is going to be very, you know, pleasurable, and they're not going to have pain and this and that. And, and some women have heard that it's going to be awful. And mm -hmm. I think that it's really important for women to understand that it's a process, right? Especially, I think, for Muslim women, and especially for women that have not had any type uh, that are virgins. Yeah. And, um, you know, for them to understand that, you know, in the beginning, it may not, uh, sexual intimacy may be difficult and may be, you know, hard, um, painful, 
right? But that it gets better with time and that, you know, they shouldn't feel pressured in the beginning to just on their wedding night, right? So a lot of times women will go with no interaction at all with men, that they're not even talking to men, that all of a sudden now they're married and now they're expected to be uninhibited around men, right? And so how do they make that transition from not speaking at all and not having any contact to now all of a sudden having to be very intimate with somebody? And I yeah. think that you know, and you can tell me what your thoughts are. But I think that it's important for women to know that that doesn't happen overnight. And it doesn't have to happen overnight and that they can take their time. And I think this is also a time where, you know, what you talk about with kunyaza, I think that might be also something that women can try um, so that they start to feel more comfortable and can become more intimate with their spouses. And I, I know that somebody also had mentioned um, using kunyaza with vaginismus. And I think that that actually is a very good idea as well. So I just want to know what your thoughts were about that. Yeah, I, I receive a lot of questions about the first night. And it's one of, it's a very difficult subject because, again, trying to understand where the person is coming from, because you have, have some men who reach out to me and they're worried because they think they need, they're worried about performance anxiety. Sure. And they don't want to hurt or, or harm their new wife. And then there are a number of women obviously concerned in the sense of, okay, do I have to have sex the first night? And again, Islamically, you do not have to have sex the first night. But what a number of women are concerned with, and this is why, again, it's important to understand the culture or where they're coming from, because there's some women from some cultures that um, they have like a um, like a ceremony where family members w will stand outside of the bedroom, outside of the first, on the first night, waiting, they're waiting to see bloodstains on the sheets of the marital bed sheets to prove virginity now we know obviously an intact vagina doesn't mean that a woman is a virgin but a number of people have that understanding or that misunderstanding that they believe to prove that a woman is a virgin she needs to have a an intact hymen and she needs to bleed and there are a number of you know horrific um, practices that's undertaken in parts of the world in and unfortunately by many muslims where this is kind of expected as part of like the the, the first night and the night and the day after because their family want to see proof and even sometimes the husbands themselves and then you have some women who because even if they've not had sexual relations before but they're comfortable with their sexuality they are trying to um pretend to be like really nervous or uncomfortable in order to satisfy his ego so there's a lot of like performative both from the men and women alike and again it's, it's i would say for women who um and I think it's probably not health, helpful enough. And like there's vaginismus, like coaches like Amira Zaki who speaks about this a lot, but um, women who hear in a lot of stories that the first night is going to be painful, that doesn't help. So there's some women who've grown up like their whole life just hearing that the first night is going to be painful, but don't worry, after two or three months, then you enjoy it. That is also not very helpful because because of that psychological, you could say, mistraining, now she goes into, into the first night where she might develop vaginismus because of what she's heard about what sex is supposed to be like, or it's supposed to feel like for the woman. So that needs a level of untraining in that respect. Um, for a woman who has got vaginismus, and like, you know, um, Angelica Linti Ali mentioned about like Kunyaza being a, a helpful technique for, for, for couples on the first night, or anyone experienced vaginismus, because it's a non-penetrative practice and it's a practice that again it's encouraging the man to satisfy his female partner and he's not obviously doing any form of penetration and it's something that he can take his time with her 
so he feels satisfied in the sense that he's pleasuring her and they are engaging in a sexual activity. She's also hopefully being satisfied because she's experiencing sexual pleasure. Even if they do not have penetrative sex, it's fine. But again, it's for those people who feel I'm not a woman until I've been until the marriage has been consummated. That's where it's problematic. And that's where maybe we need to manage or manage expectations or redefine what this first night is supposed to be. Because in Islam, like there's not this pressure to have to have the marriage consummated on the first night. It doesn't exist. Like in traditionally in, in Islam, it's something that has developed over time in different cultures that a lot of pressure and emphasis has been placed on the first night. A, because people want to prove, like I said, virginity by these different methods or because of expectations that maybe like the husband has that he wants to know, you know, whether the high, all of these, and that's why education is definitely very important. But anyone, you know, who's, you know, either going to get married or awaiting their first night, I think they should not have the expectations that they, that they need to have sex that night. And obviously the men need to be aware of that. And again, they can perform kunyaza or oral sex or different things or just manual stimulation where they're both enjoying each other, but it doesn't have to be about sex. And if they go into a, the mindset of, okay, we want to enjoy each other, about istintal, it should be enjoyable for both of us. It doesn't have to be penetrative intercourse. But if it's the way think about co consummating the marriage, and obviously that's why it can build up some anxiety both for the man and the woman alike. And um, and knowing the anatomy, I hear or receive questions where even men ask how many um, holes has a woman got? Like which hole shall I stick it? You know, and it's something that some people may, and it's not something obviously that I find um, I'm surprised by because I hear and I've received a number of these questions and a lot of people haven't been educated about the female anatomy, both male and female alike. So definitely to not put any pressure on themselves. Um, if they're coming from a background, like I said, where there is an expectation to see this proof of virginity and things like that, that might be slightly difficult to kind of um, um, address because there's an expectation that's not necessarily from the person, but their family members, you know? So what advice, like the way you may advise someone who hasn't got that expectation, she hasn't got family members around or the husband is empathetic and compassionate, then they can perform kunyaza, then they can do all sorts of things that doesn't involve penetrative intercourse until she's ready or until they're both ready. Whereas if she's from a culture or a family where there is that expectation, either A, from the family or the husband, I think, although it may be uncomfortable, it's important that a conversation is had about what virginity is and what a hymen is and not to have these expectations because just the thought of it, imagine you're going into having this encounter that you've not had before and not only you may be worried about vaginismus, whether you're going to be able to take um, intercourse or receive intercourse, but also whether you're going to bleed. So there's double, you know, and then also whether your husband is going to enjoy it. There's a lot of unnecessary pressure that's placed on the couples and even maybe the families. That's why I know, again, it might be very difficult in certain cultures, but it's important that even that kind of conversation is had before the actual wedding night. And especially if they're engaged, you know, they're committed to be married and they're adults. I don't see why, again, it's something that people feel we cannot have this conversation until we've until we've done act of the nikah. Like I think those type of conversations, especially if there's an an expectation gap, that needs to be that should be resolved before 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 the night. So we are going to split this conversation with Habiba Kande because it is so so good, and we want you to enjoy and savor it in two episodes. 
So be sure to tune in next week for the conclusion of our conversation on ways to own your own sexuality next week. And I am done here. It's been real and really intimate. Remember, this is not meant to be any type of legal religious advice. So please see your neighborhood religious leader if you have any concerns about your religion. And until next time, this is the Muslim Sex Podcast. Yeah.